I was gonna make a joke of like, you know, like I'm sure Rosa Parks is tired. Like oh, I'm sure no. she's like, stop, stop invoking really my presence. <laughs> I have left. I'm an ancestor. Stop invoking my presence. But that's why I was laughing. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we discuss popular culture and issues that concern Black women through the lens of Black feminist anthropology. My name is Alyssa, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Hey, y'all. It's Brendan, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. We have a special episode for you today that brings together Black History Month and World Anthropology Day, which is tomorrow if you're listening to this the day it comes out. We're speaking with the brilliant Dr. Rache Barnes, professor and president of the Association of Black Anthropologists, about her research, her career journey, and Black feminist anthropology. But before we get started, we wanted to thank Tina, Amber, Sophie, and Zakia for their donations to the podcast. We really appreciate your support and helping us keep our literal and figurative lights on. Girl, you actually have no idea. Um, (laughs) As we always say, we love all forms of support, which can come in the form of sharing the podcast on social media, leaving us a five-star review on Apple's podcast, or buying one of our dope-ass t-shirts on our website, ZorasDaughters.com. I love it. I love it. And we're also very excited to welcome our ZD intern, Minkute Whaley. She is an anthropology and sociology major at Spelman College and will be joining us for this season of the podcast. She's great. She's going to help us stay on point. And we are so thankful to have you with us. So she's going to help us with our social media and learning more about anthropology research and podcasting as an intern with us. Yes, yes, yes. On point. I would have said on fleek, but you know, she definitely <laughs> let us know that on fleek isn't cool anymore. So, <laughs> you know, we're, we're learning that there are generational differences now. Oh man, I'm old enough to have a generational difference. <laughs> yes. Well, what we learned is that you're on the cusp. I'm a definite millennial and you're on the cusp. So, mm-hmm. you know, that we have kind of three, <laughs> three different <laughs> different generations um, in one podcast. So yeah, I think look at us making mad movements. That's what we're doing. That's what we're out here to do. That's what we are. But what are you most interested or excited to hear about from Dr. Barnes? I think I'm most interested to hear about how she got to where she is and who helped her get there. She has had some monumental people in her life, at least from what I've read. So I'm like, how did you get to meet those people? And how do you know, you know, like, how do you get them to be on your team? Exactly. Yes. I love that. I love hearing about the journey. And I often find that people's reasons for choosing their research, it says a lot about them and especially for black women. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's just the way that people narrate it, but it often has this mystical quality, almost like it was meant to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually, now that I think about it, We've never really talked about how we got to our research topic. So I don't know. What what got you into yours? I have a long story and a short story about how I got into my research. Um, 
And I think I definitely agree with there being a mystical quality to it. So the short version is that I went to Baltimore in 2017 in the summer to work at this, essentially it was a summer camp. And while we were there cleaning up the neighborhoods, I met Freddie Gray's science teacher. Hmm. And, you know, just chance meeting, um, chance conversation. And he said that Freddie Gray still had a vibrant memory in his community, even after his death. And I was wondering, because I'd been exploring Baltimore and been talking to various people, why Corinne Gaines did not have that same memory. And then because I am a sexual violence survivor and um, advocate, I would be out and about at these events. And I met women who were very active in the anti-sexual violent movement there and those who are also involved in anti-community violence movements. And where they discussed how they were also battling the erasure of their own issues within those movements. So it was like, boom, I'm seeing some parallels here. The erasure of Black women's work, their deaths, their memories. Um, and that was that. I was hooked from that point forward. What about you? In- interesting. That's really interesting. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I see. That's why I really like to ask. I actually didn't know that. I didn't know that you spent, uh, that you went to a summer camp, that you were in Baltimore. Um, yeah. I didn't know that stuff about you. I so. was working there and, you know, I was working. <laughs> I will never do that again. I told them to take me off the email list, but that's, <laughs> that's a story for another time. <laughs> okay. That's for another story time. Uh, for me, I also have a long and a short story about mine. I will go with the short story. I had been interested in Martinican identity and I was trying to figure out a really good way of understanding this relationship, I guess you can call it, between Martinicans and Haitians that I noticed when I lived in Martinique. Hmm. And I went for a kind of preliminary fieldwork trip when I was doing my master's. And I was like, you know, what would be the best way to investigate this? And um, this farmer who was my neighbor, he was like, oh, in farming you know, because all of the Haitians, they work in farming. And mm. actually, it turns out I'm telling the long story. Okay, so all of the Haitians <laughs> work in farming. <laughs> I live for and, the long stories, though. <laughs> and, and already, you can see that, you know, Haitian, um, or sorry, you can already see that farming is is racialized in a sense. Mm. You know, farming and Haitianness are inter- intertwined. And so I was like, okay, farming, cool. Like that wasn't what I was thinking initially, but yeah, cool. I'll spend some time with some farmers in the market, in the farms. And, you know, I started noticing this, this trend of food and identity being really closely um, entangled. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. People really refer to food when they're talking about themselves. You know, mm-hmm. you associate food with different people's national identities and ethnicities. And so I thought that was really cool. Um, And then I took uh, a year off or I had planned to take a year off between my master's and applying for PhDs. And especially because I had no idea what it was that I wanted to do for my PhD. (laughs) And (laughs) I was like, I want to continue in food, but I wasn't sure what, what a good entry point would be. And I got uh, okay, so here's the short story. <laughs> I was like, yes, I'm getting a long one. I'm enjoying this because I feel like we haven't talked about, we really haven't yeah. talked about this no. as precisely. Yeah. So I would get the daily kind of email um, 
what are they called? The daily newsletters from the Martinican newspaper. I would get them in, in my email and sometimes I would read them. A lot of the times I would delete them. And I just opened one that had been in my inbox for probably a month or something. And this was in February. So it was after all of the deadlines had passed and I was still like, I don't really know what I'm going to do. And there it was. Martinique is reviving the colonial coffee production. Um, it's in partnership with Japan. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. That's hilarious. Boom, there was my project. It just was in my inbox. You know, and I think that is it, though. Like, I feel like we hear a lot about the arrival stories of anthropologists, OG anthropologists. True. Um, who quote unquote, happen to find themselves on islands that people didn't know existed with people that they didn't know how to interact with. But I feel like we really did just find our projects, just going about our day and living our lives. Um, yeah, exactly. Which, and and it was, you know, being a part of these networks and connections and communities that that brought us to our project. It wasn't it wasn't like, oh, I read this in a book and let me let me go see what's happening in this place. <laughs> it was very much because you know, we were engaged in those communities already for real for real no tea no shade to those of you who are reading books and interested in other places (laughs) of course of course not (laughs) well that was super interesting so let's get to our chat with dr barnes brendan could you introduce our wonderful guest please Rache J. Daniel Barnes is an associate professor and chair of gender studies at Mount Holyoke College and a fellow at the Yale Center for the Study of Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational Migration. She's an award-winning sociocultural anthropologist whose research focuses on Black women and Black motherhood in the U.S. South and the Black diaspora. Her book, Raising the Race, Black Career Women Redefine Marriage, Motherhood, and Community, won the 2017 Distinguished Book Award for the Race, Gender, Class section of the American Sociological Association. Dr. Barnes has also received awards in recognition of her scholar activism, teaching, and mentoring. She's been active with the Movement for Black Lives, hashtag say her name, and the Black Girls and Women Research Group, convened by the African American Policy Forum. She is currently the president of the Association of Black Anthropologists and co-founder of the Association of Black Anthropologists Mentoring Program. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Barnes. Thanks for having me. Yes, yes. We're so excited. (laughs) Thank you. I am too. (laughs) Um, So we're going to go ahead and get started with our first question for you today, Dr. Barnes, which is how would you define Black feminist anthropology? Yeah, so this is... This is a great question, right, obviously, um, because Black feminist anthropology, right, is, is, is bringing in to the existing, our existing understanding of anthropology, bringing into it an understanding of Black feminism, right, which, which we could argue many of our foremothers in Black anthropology were were already doing Black feminist anthropology before we even had a terminology for it. Um, Zorno Hurston obviously would be one of them. But when I when I think about what, like if I break it down to Black feminist anthropology, I think that the teacher in me wants to say, well, let's talk about what anthropology is, let's talk about what Black feminism is, and then also let's talk about you know, what it means to put them all together. 
And so what I teach my students when we're talking about Black feminisms, because I, I teach in the gender studies department, so not everybody coming to my classes is an anthropology, anthropology major. Um, so I teach them about Black feminisms. I bring in, obviously, because I am an anthropologist, an understanding of Black feminist ethnography and Black feminist anthropology. But I always start them off with the foundations of like, what do we mean by Black feminisms? And so I lean very heavily on um, Beverly Guy Sheftal and her work. And I also yes. lean very heavily on Patricia Hill Collins, mm -hmm. um, just to give them that, that kind of foundation, right? And so um, Beverly Guy Sheftal talks about how there are, there, like, Black feminism isn't monolithic, um, and it's not a static ideology, and there's considerable diversity among people who consider themselves Black feminists. But there are certain premises or tenets that are constant. And she said, she names five of them. And she says, Black women experience a special kind of oppression and suffering in this country, which is races, sexes, and classes, because of their dual racial and gender identity and their limited access to economic resources. This was published in 1995. So obviously, at this point, because we're not static, we would add other ways of thinking about the oppression that is specific to Black women, Black femmes, gender nonconforming. Uh, folks who align themselves with Black women's issues. Um, so I want to make sure that I'm clear that that this is expansive. Guy Sheftal goes on to talk about how there's a triple jeopardy that Black women are concerned about, which is different from and brings up different concerns and problems than we would have for um, black men and white women. And of course, again, the timing, right, was about this divide between black women and white women and black men um, and black women. But obviously, we would have to make that more expansive and talk about other ways in which black women have concerns, problems, needs that are different even from other women of color, right? And then um, black women must struggle for black liberation and gender equality simultaneously. And then fourth, she says, there's no inherent contradiction in the struggle to eradicate sexism and racism and all the other isms which plague the human community. And then finally, she says, Black women's commitment to the liberation of Blacks and women is profoundly rooted in their lived experience. And of course, we know that is where Patricia Hill Collins roots Black feminist thought in this understanding that Black feminism is centered on Black women's standpoint and Black women's self-defined understanding of their own oppression. So she too talked about um, the components of Black women's standpoint, talking about Black women's political and economic status um, that provides them with a distinctive set of experiences, talking also about the experiences of Black women's material reality that gives them a different understanding of um, Black feminist consciousness. Um, she goes on to talk about and, and expand on um, standpoint, um, and really rooting the understanding even of coming up with a theoretical perspective for Black feminism in Black women's epistemological um, understandings of their own relationship to resistance and oppression. So even Black women's philosophy, right, even our ability mm -hmm. to theorize is developed experientially, developed in community and dialogue, and then grounded in an ethic of care and personal accountability, which I, I really love that. 
like those three things in particular, I think really ground the way that we think about, or at least the way that I think about black feminisms. Combine that with anthropology and the fact that anthropology is the holistic study of humans. Uh, we know that we had to do some work on that definition. Anthropologists, you know, of course, you, you, you both know this, have a four-field approach, and we, we do cultural, we do biological or physical, linguistics, archaeology, and then we, all have, we have all the subfields. Um, mm. And I think that um, what's key about that and, and what brought me to anthropology was this notion that we could understand the human existence from all these different perspectives. And when we put a Black feminist lens on that, we're talking about Black feminism going into each of these fields and creating a holistic understanding of humans. That is powerful. Mm -hmm. So for me, I guess I draw on Irma McLaren's definition from Black feminist anthropology um, that, that Black feminist anthropology constructs its own canon that is both theoretical and based in a politics of praxis and poetics, mm. again, situated in Black women's experiences. And it also seeks to deconstruct the institutionalized racism and sexism that has characterized the history of the discipline of anthropology. So Black feminist anthropology is not only dealing in understanding Black feminism as it is constructed, as it is operable, but also in how it is working within our discipline, right? Um, so I just wrote this article that seeks to build on and expand into a Black transnational feminist praxis, which would be um, another way for anthropologists, Black feminist anthropologists, to think about the way in which we theorize and engage. Um, this article is going to be in the Cambridge Handbook for, for the Anthropology of Gender and Sexuality. We're just like... Okay, we were getting ready up. to ask. <laughs> we're, just, we're kind of finishing it up. It's, we're, in the, we're at the point where we're, you know, doing the final edits and all that kind of stuff. In the article, I'm really trying to foreground this idea that Black feminist anthropologists uh, right now, contemporary Black feminist anthropologists are really, and, and definitely like we're always building on our, our um, history, our, you know, the, the theory, the the work that has been done before us, but I'm I'm building on this idea that um, that Black feminist anthropology is um, because we are doing work in other parts of the world. We have um, we have something particular to say about um, how institutionalized racism and sexism have been historically deployed throughout the diaspora. And, um, and we need to uh, have ways to articulate that, right, to be able to talk about that. And also, because we are interested in transforming the discipline, we have to be also concerned about making sure that the Black feminists um, throughout the diaspora are um, their their voices, their standpoints are being foregrounded as well, right? So that it's not just a U.S.-centric focused, even if we're the ones going into the field, 
it, it shouldn't just be a U.S. focused understanding of um, of black feminist anthropology, it should be one that is being developed out of the diaspora, right? That is being fueled by the experiences of black women in Africa as well and throughout the diaspora. Yes, I think you've just given me so much to think about and so much that I want to respond to. <laughs> I mean, first of all, you know, talking about, I think what was really powerful for me reading Faye Harrison and Patricia Hill Collins um, Audre Lorde as well, something that Audre Lorde said uh, or wrote actually has really stuck with me, which was in the kind of white Western philosophical paradigm, the phrase is, I think, therefore I am. And Audre Lorde said, I feel, therefore I can be free. Yes. That struck me. That was just a way of elevating Black women's ways of being in the world, the Black diaspora, the ways that we think and see and feel, and that being valuable as an epistemological framework was so important for me. Yeah, I think a lot about diaspora too, and not necessarily in my work, um, but just in general and thinking about, yeah, like how do we draw the line? And then even thinking about that Black feminist methodologies workshop that we had, where she was explaining that a lot of African scholars um, are rejecting feminism, right? Based off of like, you know, it's, it's whiteness, right? It's in the ways that gender under white supremacy can look a little differently. And so yes. what does it mean to claim feminism if the right to work doesn't mean anything to you, right? Or like, you know, so just other things to, to think about when we're thinking diasporically, and as we're thinking about building, at least for me, I'm, I'm thinking Black feminist anthropology always has a purpose, a political purpose, and like thinking about building power for Black people. And so if we're thinking about doing that globally yes. and we want to be quote unquote feminist, yeah. what does that mean when we're in dialogue with other people um, who might not understand feminism to be the same thing that we do or might not see it as empowering? So I'm interested to read your article and, and see like, like how, how you're bringing that in, because it's, it is something that I think about a lot, for sure. Yeah, and Gwen, Gwen Michael wrote a really good book. I don't know if y'all have seen it. It's, um, well, she edited it, but it, it's, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit old now, but I think the, the conversation is definitely still relevant, and it's, it's called African Feminism. And there are um, chapters throughout that are written by um, women on the continent um, who are talking about many of the things that you're saying, Brendan, about what is wrong with the way that we understand feminism because we have been rooted in this kind of Western um, ideology, even though we have pulled away from it, right, by establishing Black feminism, we found ways to make it um, fit our experiences. There, you know, obviously there are ways in which we, because we're in the Western context and we have been disciplined by these Westernized disciplines, there, there are things that we still do that we need to be careful of, right? There, there are ways in which we, you know, create imbalances of power and, and things like that, even in our desire to be politically involved in a way that's going to be beneficial. You know, speaking of discipline and disciplining, you are an anthropologist. I think that people are always curious about how folks actually end up studying anthropology because not everyone is, you know, exposed to the discipline, especially sociocultural anthropology. People might be familiar with archaeology, but they might not hear about sociocultural prior to starting university. And so, 
No, we we prepared for this interview. I saw that your early degrees are in political science and urban studies. So, you know, we'd love to hear about your journey. What brought you to anthropology for your PhD and who was influential for you? Yeah, I have to scream Janetta Besh Cole's name from the rooftops for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) I would not be not only wouldn't be an anthropologist, I don't even think I would be the woman that I am without this woman in my life. Um, she was president of Spelman when I was matriculating. And she periodically taught uh, an anthropology class, which I did not take because anthropology was not on my radar at all. I was planning to be an attorney. I had a scholarship that was um, from the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. So I spent most of my time either writing from a journalistic perspective or, um, or you know, preparing myself to go to law school. So I was editor of the student newspaper. I did SGA stuff. Like these were all the things that were getting me to law school. And, um, and but because I was editor of the newspaper, um, I was in the leadership cabinet and Dr. Cole would have meetings with us periodically. And so I had built a relationship with her where I, you know, felt like she was a a mentor, right? And um, it was my junior year. And I had the summer between junior year and senior year was the year when you when you had a scholarship with the Atlanta Journal and Constitution where they actually made you a, a reporter. So you became a staff writer. You went out and um, you were you were part of a team of of uh, writers, and you would go out and do you know different stories. And that year, um, I was part of a team that was going to do a series on the young people who had um, died from violent deaths in that year. So this was May, June, and we were starting from January and just looking at, you know, who, which under 18s had died violent deaths over the course of that year up to that point. And I was sent out to interview families. And it was so devastating to be in this situation where I was capturing people's trauma, essentially. I mean, I didn't have the language for it then, but basically watching people, mostly mothers, of course, recount what had happened to their young person, tell stories of the young person. You know, of course, I was going to their home, so they had pictures, right? It was it was really difficult for me to be in that space. And I wasn't sent out with other journalists. Like I was doing this by myself, but then writing up my notes and then we were doing this series, right? And at the end of it, when it was published and I had my byline and I was all excited, I was also like, now what? We just reported on all of this and, and, and what? What are we supposed to do now? I felt a very deep sense of frustration. And when I looked at where journalism might take me, it also made me look at where law, where the law might take me. And I wasn't seeing either one of them as ways for me to do the kind of what I thought, you know, I thought, I always thought I wanted to do something for my community. I always felt like I wanted to make a change, right? We're so idealistic. I want to make a change in the world, right? Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm looking at these two pathways and I'm like, this isn't it. And I really felt like I had kind of a 
crisis of what am I about to do with myself when I've been telling the whole world, anybody who would listen to me, that I was going to be a, an attorney and a, mm-hmm. and a journalist, right? That was the way I was constructing myself. And mm-hmm. um, I remember, I can't remember how I got in touch with Dr. Cole or when exactly, but I remember by the time it was time to start senior year fall, I had had a conversation with her and I had decided, she had actually suggested that I take a sociology course and an anthropology course because I was saying I wanted to learn more, do more in the Black community and I knew I didn't want to go to law school. And I thought I might want to be a professor, but I didn't know what I wanted to study and I didn't know how I wanted to make an impact. And I took intro to sociology and intro to anthropology and went to intro to anthropology and it was you y'all i don't know if it's intro has changed enough i think since since i was in intro that you all didn't have the kind of nonsense happening in your class that i did i doubt it i doubt it (laughs) and i went to duke so i think that says (laughs) enough about what the intro was like i'm and i made a c like i made a c (laughs) in intro because you had just checked out you were like this is not for me i am not doing this I think it was, well, partially checked out because I was very confused about all these different theories. But and then I would write in my essays like this is not true about black people. Like right. I, I was that student that was like, yeah, we read this and this is what the reading said, but this is yep. not true. Yep. And so I would get loose points for disagreeing. But, you know, it's not <laughs> it's not. It's not about me. Let me like, mute myself. No, you're good. You're good, right? Because because it's that, right? It's the intro. It's the problem with intro that I've written about. I've talked about. I've tried to change when I have had the opportunity to teach intro. But yeah, it was it was it was just rooted in just the most ethnocentric, just biased nonsense and we used to read the the um the the monographs i think that's what they were called the little books that were about a particular tribe they probably got rid of those by the time you were in intro but we had these little books that were about particular tribes or groups of people in different parts of the world the yanomami the name it there was a, there was a little yeah like almost <laughs> like a trap book um about them yeah and, um, but despite that, what I saw in intro was a way to understand Black culture, right? And that was, that was what I wanted to do and to do it from their perspective, right? Our perspective, right? Talk to our people because I had the benefit of having an instructor, even though intro was problematic, my instructor gave us some good readings. Like we read... Um, John Waltney's Dry Long So. And I remember reading that and just being like, oh, wow, you can, you can actually go into communities and talk to people and find out what they're experiencing and write about it. And that can be the way that we make changes. In the same way that you said, Brenda, it's the, it's the, the, the understanding that you can, you can say, this is how it actually is. What you've been saying it is, is wrong. All these stereotypes, they're wrong. Here's what's actually happening in the Black community. And that really excited me, made me interested, made me want to know more and how to do it and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I'm, se- I'm a senior at the time. 
my parents are going to kill me if I say I'm trying to change my major. And so I, I could barely get them to be okay with me not going to law school. And so my, my parents were like, yep, you are climbing that social class ladder. You're going to be an attorney and you're going to make money. And, you know, and, and when I said I'm going to be a professor, they were like, a what? <laughs> what, do, what do professors do again? <laughs> Right. And you're going to, and you're going to wait and you're going to study what? <laughs> you working with the books and bones and stuff. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Oh, I got so many of those, right? Oh, you want to be like Indiana Jones? You want to go dig? No, that's not actually what we do. Okay. We definitely, we do some digging though. We do, we some, do digging. some digging. It is some it's very digging. different. It's very different. It's very different. Um, so yeah, I took it, you know, I was coming, I'm just coming to the game late. I took a year off um, and then I applied to grad school and I actually started at Sydney University of New York with Leaf Mulling. She was my advisor. Oh, wow. Yeah. When I first got there and, but then I, I needed to leave New York for, for a lot of reasons. And so I took a leave of absence, went to a master's program in urban studies at Georgia State, and then went to Emory for the PhD in anthropology. Yeah, we actually haven't had the opportunity on the podcast to address the passing of Leith Mullings on December 13th, 2020. And her work we read for a previous episode, and it has been such an inspiration to us as Black women anthropologists. And we would like to take a moment to honor her and say thank you, Leith Mullings, for your contributions. We know you can hear us yes. on the other side with the ancestors yes. rooting for us, <laughs> making the way easy for us. Um, and I know that she was also a significant mentor to you. Um, and if you feel ready, could you share with us like how her mentorship has influenced your development as a scholar and also your own commitment to mentorship? Yeah, so gosh. Janetta Cole told me to apply to City University of New York graduate program to work with Lee Mullings. And, uh, and I did, because I, I do oh, pretty much everything Dr. Cole tells me to do. <laughs> I mean, can you, honestly, it's like, can you disagree? I don't with know, her? I can't, I, no, <laughs> I can't. I would, I would, I don't know what I would feel like I was going to be struck by lightning if I disagreed with her. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I went to, and when I, and when I decided to leave, I called her and was like, so I'm feeling like, cause I needed her blessing. I went, I went to work with Leith and the, the biggest impact Leith had for me was, was continuing that tradition of letting me know what was possible within anthropology. So when I went to Emory and part of the reason why I got the master's in urban studies was because of Leith, because when I decided to, to, to take the leave of absence from CUNY Graduate Center, I had missed the deadline for all, all other PhD programs and needed to do something with myself while I was waiting to apply to a new program. And I, I had decided to go to Emory because Dr. Cole was going to Emory. She, she and Ida Suster, were doing uh, urban anthropology, which I didn't, you know, I didn't know that was plausible. I didn't know that was a thing. Um, so I took urban anthropology from Ida Susser and I took 
um, a course. I can't remember the name of it right now. I would have to look up the syllabus. I still have all my syllabi. Uh, I took a course with LEAF that was basically about, it must have been something like Black women's ethnography or or women in ethnography or something like that. Anyway, put the two of them together, this urban anthropology and this and this understanding of, of feminist ethnography or or understanding black women's lives. I um, I knew that when I went into Emory, I knew that it was possible for me to do that kind of work. I also knew that I could do US based work. And I think if I had not had that experience with Leaf, I would not have known I would have gone into Emory thinking, like I was being told by many people, you go out into the field, you go away, and then you, and then you can do something on the U.S. when you come back. But you have to go away. You're not an anthropologist if you don't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it was from learning. It was from being in their courses. It was from learning from the projects that they were working on. Um, Ida Susser had been working on uh, homelessness in New York. Uh, Leaf had been working on um, black women's black women broadly, but then started working on um, black women in Central Harlem and started working on um, uh, the Birth Project, and um, and so it. And then, if I'm remembering the timing well, I think either the African burial ground was happening at the same time or had had just happened. Something like I was aware of all these ways in which you could be doing work on black folks and work on black women in ways that were that were that were hard right it wasn't it wasn't easy work it wasn't easy to understand and 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 work on these issues but it was but it was work that it was it was meaningful and it was pushing us towards um, making significant changes in people's lives and going into Emory with that knowledge really made it such that I could stay and I could develop the project I wanted to do and then I could make it through that project. And then along the way, because I wasn't LEAF student anymore, we would have periodic check-ins. So she was like my mentor from afar. Like I wasn't her student, right? She didn't, she wasn't guiding me through my program. She wasn't helping me work out my kinks, but I used her as kind of a almost like a North Star, right? Um, of knowing where where I wanted to get, of knowing what I needed to read. When I think about when Irma McLaren says, Black feminist anthropology builds its own canon, I think about the way that I had to construct my reading list on Black women um, and Black feminist ethnography and how it was it was difficult, but I knew that I could do it from both working with Leaf and also from working with Janetta Cole, like they, they shaped me. And then they made sure, both of them made sure that I was looped in to the Association of Black Anthropologists. Um, and then I got to know Leaf students, um, both from being there for that year, but also from being engaged in the Association of Black Anthropologists. So Donna Ian Davis, is someone who continues to be significant, a significant mentor for me, even though we were at CUNY at the same time. She's, for me, she's like my big sister. And Anna Aparicio, who is um, at Northwestern, Raymond Codrington, 
um, who is in more of an applied approach to anthropology now. There was just, there was a bunch of us there at that time who, you know, I, they, they were like my siblings and it was like, I could go into Emory already knowing that, that I had support and that I could do the work that I was trying to do, even if there weren't going to be folks at Emory who were going to guide me. And I say that because by the time I got to my exams, Dr. Cole had left. So I had to reconstruct my committee and, you know, face those challenges. But knowing that I had those folks um, and that experience, you know, uh, beforehand, that was really, you know, helpful for me. It stabilized me. And then Leith was just a touchstone, right? You know, it was just every periodically, it was just, you know, an email or a phone call or, you know, a quick check-in at ABAs, right? It wasn't, you know, she wasn't, I wouldn't say that she was always, you know, she wasn't reading my work. She wasn't, it wasn't that kind of mentoring relationship. It was a, I don't even know, it's, it's, it's hard to explain. And, and I didn't really, I honestly didn't really realize how devastated I was um, or, or how much of a connection I had to her until I was so devastated by the loss. It sounds like she just really affirmed you and, and your work and what it was that you were doing and wanted to do. And I think having people like that in your life and especially as an academic is so, so, so important. Yeah. And she, she also challenged me because there are times when, I mean, my, my book is on black middle class women, right? So we were working on different women, right? We were, you know, she was working more with women who were lower income and, you know, dealing with those types of challenges. And I was looking at middle-class Black women and and elite Black women in the South and, you know, really different populations, if you really think about it, right? And, um, And so she was challenging me on, you know, who are you talking to, right? Who, like, <laughs> what, you know, there were times when I was just like, hmm. Yes, I, <laughs> I heard that she is the, the woman who asked the hard questions um, a lot of the time in the spaces that she's in. And I, t- I tend to be that kind of person too in, in spaces. So I was like, I can really resonate with that, even though I never had the opportunity to meet her um, before she passed. I remember Lee Baker was explaining to me the different types of mentors and, you know, you have like your brokers who introduce you to people who help you do things. And then you have like your mentor mentors who do a lot of like emotional labor for you. And there's another type too that I can't really remember off the top of my head, but it sounds like she just served a really special space and as like sometimes brokering you, but also challenging you in your work and, and being thoughtful about that. And that's really, I think that's really wonderful. And yeah, you know, Leith, we miss you. I I probably shouldn't call you by first name, but you know, we miss you. Uh (laughs) (laughs) I don't think, I don't think she, I don't think she would mind. We're doing a special issue of transforming anthropology. Um, I mean, it's our, it's our regular issue, but we're holding space for articles that are about, um, how Leaf's work tied into ours. And, you know, one of the things that I, that I talk about that I kind of lay out is like how she challenged my work. And she was definitely one of those people who, you know, she was like, she, she was not the, 
warm fuzzy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But she had this little, you know, when I wrote my comments about her for um, when she, when we were trying to let everybody know that she had passed away, she just, she had this, this quiet, you know, this, this little package that was like, I'm coming for you, right? I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to resonate with this. Yes. (laughs) And uh, I do miss her. I do. I miss her presence. I miss knowing that she's here, that she's in the world and doing the work that she was doing. And yeah, it's hard to, yeah, the world just feels different without her in it. I think that one of the things that she showed us is, is how and that it's possible to take Black women seriously yes. as, as theorists of their own lives and of the world generally. And you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but, you know, in social science research, Black women, they're often pathologized, rendered as the poor Black mother, or they have us playing into these tropes or archetypes of Black womanhood. And we did an episode on this, if there are any folks who are like, what are you talking about with these archetypes? Um, It's episode two, Ain't I a Woman? And so as you were saying, you know, your research, it elevates Black womanhood and specifically middle-class Black women as a site of knowledge production. So could you tell us a little bit about how you arrived at, at this scholarly project? Yeah, that was, <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, it was by mistake. I went into, I went into grad school or like, or I guess when I started really trying to formulate my project, I was really interested in, I was always interested in, in class, right? And I was always interested in class from the, from the South. Right. I was interested in the U.S. South. I was interested in, in, in class divisions. And, but I was looking at it, I was initially looking at gentrification in Atlanta, and I was interested in how Black folks were doing it, and if they were doing it, and if it showed up the same way as white folks doing it, and if so, in what ways. And I'm glad I switched, because Mary Patillo came out with a book, and that would have just, we don't need your work, Rache, because we got Mary Patillo's. I... I, had, I got married and had um, all three of my kids while I was in grad school. With my first, I was taking her to story time. So I was in between, I had just finished coursework and I was preparing for my uh, qualifying exams. And I, t- I was taking her, to, it was summertime and I was taking her to story time. She was born in June and I was taking her to story time at the local library. And I, and I met all these black women who were in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week, at story time with their little kids. And, you know, you can peep out, we know this, we can be honest about this. You can peep out class differences, right? So I'm looking at these women and I'm like, these are like professional women, like like, these are women who would be at work, right? Would be at career work, right? Not, Not wage work, right? Would be at salaried work. And I was hanging out with them. They were, they were repeats. I was a repeat because I was in, in grad school <laughs> and they were repeats. And I, you know, we just started getting to know each other and we started having a, you know, kind of, even when we weren't at story time, we were doing these play groups together with the kids and these were happening during the week in the middle of the day. And I just got interested in like, huh, what were like, are you a stay at home mom? Are you on maternity leave? Are you like, what do you do it? <laughs> I love I love when projects kind of just seem to come together in this. It, it, it's almost like magic sometimes. It just something happens, something clicks, and 
I, I love that. Seriously. So I'm asking them, you know, I'm getting to know them, asking them questions, whatever. Fine. You know, and it turns out that they're all career women. They're all, and they're not on maternity leave. They're, some of them have kids that are big. You know, when I say big, they're like two or so. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm asking them questions. How, what, like, how this happen? Are you like, what's, what's up? Did you quit? What's happening? And they're, and they're saying things like, I'm home. I don't know for how long, or I'm, you know, I thought it was important to do this. So I'm doing it, whatever. Like it was just very kind of, but also the undertone was, but I know I'm not supposed to be right. There was this undercurrent of, yeah, I know I'm supposed to be at work or yeah, you know, my family gives me pushback. Um, The way that I start the book, I think, or like one of the chapters I talk about, um, one of the women who says that every time she talks to her dad, he's like, um, why aren't you at work? You need to go to, like, what are you doing? And, you know, what you understand and what I what I understood from my own situated knowledge was for for smart black girls, you're supposed to have a career and you're supposed to be doing good things for your community. Right. And part of your good things for the community is having your career. Right. Because that's setting an example. It's, you know, it's the whole lifting as you climb Mm. thing rhetoric. Right. And and so a lot of them were getting that kind of communal pushback that was like, what are you doing? You know, physicians, engineers, marketing, you know, working in the business industry as marketing um, executives, you know, so on and so forth. Right. Like. What are you, like, you're supposed to be doing things for the community. And then also the other undercurrent was, and you're dependent on a black man? Like, you sure you want to do that? I mean, I'm just being real. I'm just being real, right? Like, if you're a black girl growing up in the U.S., and I would venture to say much of the diaspora, there's kind of an understanding that you may be on your own raising your kids at some point in your life, right? Yeah. And so the the idea in that in that context is you're you're never going to put yourself in a position where you're dependent, right? You're supposed to be independent. You're supposed to be ambitious. So anyway. I did, um, I did a preliminary study kind of with these women loosely with this group of women um, to see, you know, so I developed a, a set of questions um, and asked this group of women to see what were some of the questions I needed to be asking in a, in a bigger study. And also, is this something that's researchable? And that question came from Leith. The question of whether or not I could do this project actually came from Leith Mullings because Leith Mullings said there are not enough Black women who are in a position to be able to make a decision to be at-home moms for this project to be sustainable. And what the way in which she challenged me on this project was to say, what do we mean by making a decision? Who's making a choice? Who's able to make a choice? When is the choice operable, right? It was, you know, and I I hadn't been engaging in that way before she asked that question. It wasn't a question about there aren't enough people, of course. Of course, there are enough Black women who are in careers and could make a decision to be 
at home, but is it a choice, right? What is that decision? I'm doing quotes for decision. What, what is it that, what is the decision, right? And who are the decision makers? Who is contributing to that decision or even what, right, is, is contributing to the ability to make that decision? And is it an ability, right? Should we see it as an ability or is it something else right um so yeah that's that's how I got there (laughs) (laughs) yeah I would say in um you you kind of lay out these frameworks for thinking about the tensions between being black being a woman and agency and choice and for me um I'm from South Carolina my family's low-income background and you know, I struggled reading certain parts of it because I have a very different practice of family, um, or I would, my friends would probably say kin practice uh, as a Black queer woman. And so I was like trying to, trying to reconcile the, these thoughts, right? As someone who's never really, I didn't know that there were Black elite people until I went to college at Duke University. What was enlightening was thinking about this neo-politics of respectability, which you lay out in the book. And to me, politics of respectability and also respectability politics, which I'm now understanding are two different things, um, demonstrate the ways that racism as a framework, right, fails to accurately encapsulate Black experiences, right? So you talk about this, this struggle in the book with these women who um, who see their, their staying at home as, as something that resists these racist depictions of Black women as head of their households. But that logic, and you you talk about this tension, that logic also kind of incorporates these anti-Black strategies of refusal. So one can resist racism by practicing anti-Blackness. And so, which is why I think anti-Blackness is like a a better way to think about Black experiences. But I know other people would probably argue me down about that. Um, I wanted to say that like, so... And to be more clear about it, like these women often saw their choice at home to be a refusal of racial stereotypes of poor Black women. But then these choices kind of reified these patriarchal structures that still, in my opinion, called for the Black woman to decenter herself. So, and I see that too as an act of anti-Black violence when we are asked to put other people before ourselves. Um, it's particularly children and men. Yep. <laughs> um <laughs> But you and you you name this bind as constrained choices. For those of you who haven't read the book, Dr. Rache Barnes really just kind of lays it out for you. Well, this framework of constrained choices. And I wanted to ask, thinking about it's been a number of years since you've done this research and published the work. And I'm wondering about what are the stakes of constrained choices now as we're in kind of this, I would say, more emboldened movement for Black lives um, as it continues. And do do you still do research with middle class Black women? Do they still see these neopolitics of respectability as a pathway for racial liberation or for their own individual freedom? And you talk about in the book, right, how they instruct their children about dealing with the police, dealing with laws and things like that. So I'm wondering if that has shifted in the in the years since you've written it. Yeah, it's a, a great set of questions. And definitely, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned or have been learning since I finished the project and, and since it's come out is there, there are definitely things about... Like if I were to write the book now, like if it was my second book <laughs> instead of my first, I would have challenged 
I think I would have challenged more. You know, I don't really challenge anything until until the conclusion. And then it's still not as much of a challenge as it probably should be about, you know, just really diving into the ways in which these women are responding to neoliberalism, they're responding to and engaging in anti-Blackness. And I think you're right, Brendan, like, like I, I prefer, and that's part of the reason why, well, I prefer to look at, at the way things are happening and have always happened, right, as anti-Blackness, right? Like, it's not that we need more diversity. It's not that we need more equity. It's y'all got a problem with blackness and let, you know, let's, let's name that. Let's talk about it. <laughs> so, um, you know, and that, and that's, that's, that's a world system, right? It's not even just in the U S which I think is why it's so powerful because it, it means to get at um, as, as our also dearly departed elder Audrey Smedley talked about, these these world systems right these these um world logics and she talked about racism in that way and 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 definitely you know i think that she would see in today in today's language anti-blackness right as as the thing you know respect respectability politics politics and respectability so the way and i actually heard um Evelyn Higginbotham talk about the way when she developed the politics of respectability no one had really been talking about respectability and then after her book came out she's like there was this whole cultural shift to everybody talking about respectability politics right and it was a it's a it's a different framework than what what she identified as the politics of respectability as you were kind of hinting at and then and the the reference that I'm making to Evelyn Higginbotham is to her book Righteous Discontent um, where she lays out the politics of respectability. So when I pick up on the neo-politics of respectability, I'm basically, I'm, I'm using her framework to say that these middle-class elite women are thinking, in, at, you know, at the turn of the 21st century, are thinking that they are doing some of the things that, that was happening at the turn of the 20th century with the Black Women's Club movement. And while they're not in a movement while they are not, um, and this is the part that makes it the neo-politics of respectability, they're not actually engaged in large-scale activist movements, but they're seeing their individual decisions as ones that are going to be positively reflective of the Black community. And that's kind of, you know, that's the way they were articulating you know, many of the things that they were deciding to do, especially as it pertained to being married and having children and, 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 you know, making sure in their language, making sure that their children were not falling into some, you know, social class decline. Right. And, you know, for many of the women, I don't know if you got a chance to look at the table in the back of the book that actually lays out um, how many of the women had grown up in, poor households, how many had grown up in in middle class and elite um, households. I tried to lay it out so that it would so that you could kind of follow which of the women were aspirationally thinking that they were reaching a middle class um, position or an elite position and which of the women were already situated there. And so and so as a result felt like they had a different degree of freedom. I, I actually have a an art well there's a there's a there's a chapter that didn't make it into the book that and I would love to turn into an article but it, I think it might be it might be too late now but 
because I would have to update that data, but it basically was kind of laying out the women who were from kind of poor working class, excuse me, who were kind of coming from poor working class backgrounds were, were much more attentive to these strategies than the women who were clearly situated within upper middle class and elite families, right, of, of origin. And that, that difference, you know, Higginbotham also lays out, right, that difference is in this idea that, that to have social class mobility, you have to fit into these ideas of respectability, right? You have to, and you don't realize that that doesn't help you until you've already been there, right? Until you're already at that point. And then you can say that didn't, that's not doing anything for me. It's actually, that's actually making my, my situation more tenuous and more precarious. And so in terms of like, are these women still doing these types of things for the, I mean, for the women that I interviewed that I'm still in touch with, absolutely. Um, Because their, their kids are, you know, coming into adulthood at this point. Many of them are, you know, I'm trying to think of everybody. I mean, I think, you know, the families that I'm still in touch with, you know, the the ones that had the oldest kids, their kids are out of college at this point. The ones that were younger are middle school and high school. Um, and so, yeah, there, I mean, even more heightened sense of um, of protectionism, but also recognizing, I mean, sadly, there is one family where those fears around, you know, keeping children from being involved with the wrong folks and doing the wrong thing and, you know, that social class decline, um, they actually experienced that with one of their kids who ended up in bad shape with the law, but are starting to understand that and it's a, it's a difficult process because there's so much unlearning that has to happen, even within the Black community. They're, they're just starting, the mom in particular is just starting to understand that there are systems in place that are making this so, right? But the dad is still like, what are you doing? We didn't raise you to be this way. And we, you know, we made sure you had this and that and you didn't need to do this, right? You didn't need to make this decision. You know, you had options, Right. We made sure you had, you know, you had a good life. You had a home. You had both your parents. You had. Right. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, it's the thing that happens for all of us. Right. As we get older, as we see more of the world, as we understand more of the systems, as we educate ourselves more because no one's doing it for us. We we become clearer about the ways in which systems are operable. So this this research that you know that you were doing, of course, it culminated in your monograph, raising the race, which is you know the work that we've been talking about. And we mentioned in your bio that it won an award from the American Sociological Association, even though you're an anthropologist and your work is anthropological. And so this isn't you know, of course, we're not critiquing the award or this isn't a criticism of of the award being given. But I think this is a question that emerges from conversations that Brendan and I have, that we have with other Black colleagues in the discipline. And it's a question of, does our discipline recognize Black people as legitimate sites of knowledge production, particularly when we, that is Black people, are the ones doing the research? And so I've said before, you know, we are trying to, with this podcast, give people the tools to have conversations, to join conversations that are often had about us without us. So what what do you think? 
Yeah. So first of all, I have to say an award is an award is an award. And I am so happy. <laughs> that the, definitely not knocking the award. <laughs> that the American <laughs> Sociological Association <laughs> saw fit <laughs> to award me. Um, even though I am not a sociologist, so I really appreciate that. Um, and also the race, gender, class section. Um, I, I'm in this, this strange space of, you know, because of the disciplinary divides, right, that we're all so aware of. Um, I, I, was, I was not easily read by anthropology. Um, my book was put up for some awards in anthropology and 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 didn't win and um, I was up against some steep competition that year though uh, uh, Amy Cox's book Shapeshifter came out too and so um, yeah <laughs> so I'm really happy that you know her work got a lot of acknowledgement but yeah we were we were up for um, some of the same awards in anthropology and not to say I would have gotten I, just, I don't know if I would have gotten them but I but I do know that you know just from a couple of conversations I had with people it was a it was a, a steep competition year the year that my book came out mm-hmm. you know because of what we were talking about before this kind of go somewhere else and come back and do U.S. work I think some of that still exists within anthropology um and so you know, there's there's that piece. There's also the piece, and I think this is what worked well for me in sociology, there's the piece that anthropologists don't really do Black family either. Like, that's really a sociological concern. You know, so there were a few ways in which the way that I was situated wasn't, wasn't easily recognizable for anthropology. It was much more recognizable for sociology and American studies and, you know, so on and so forth. And I, I do think, I mean, I think if I'm, if I'm understanding your question right, I think that we are still in a position within anthropology where the exotic other Black person is, is still much more interesting, <laughs> valuable, um, and I think part of that comes from the from the issue of that that anthropology has been facing of late, and that is the 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 talkback, right? The the fact that our uh, our participants, our respondents, are can can are you know are educated and are engaged and can be engaged in talking back to our uh, research. I think anthropology as a discipline still likes the idea of the natives not talking back. And um, I think... I mean, that's what what I think I was trying to get at is, you know, when, when Black people are doing the research with other Black people, it's sociology. But of course, you can get your Alice Goffman's on the run. That was creative. That was creative fiction work, you know, <laughs> creative fiction. Um. But but you can you know you can get you can get white folks going to hang out with the blacks and you know the blacks in uh, oh, the blacks. I don't know <laughs> Sierra Leone <laughs> or the, the blacks in South Carolina, um, and then and then that's anthropology because you know, they're just so different. We're so other yeah. that, that that contrast makes it anthropological. And it's almost as though our discipline requires yeah, that. Yeah, we still have that divide about, 
you know, I mean, I can't, I, I, I'm sure you can imagine how many times I was told that I was studying myself when I was working on my project, um, especially if they heard that I was, that I was married and I had kids. It was like, oh, you're studying yourself. Oh, that's great. No, I'm not, actually. <laughs> I'm not studying myself. That would be called autobiography. Um, Brendan relates. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. Yes. Yeah, so we still we still have some work to do on you know really developing you know be establishing a black Americanists working in the U.S. being you know completely engaged in U.S. work being seen as serious anthropologists right as serious theorists it is it is still a struggle and I and I will say it's such still is still such a struggle you know the job market bears it out in in many ways right it's it's difficult to find an a, a black anthropologist who did work in the u.s in an anthropology department period like no joint appointment no just i'm an anthropologist and i think that says a lot right yes <laughs> or you have to be so prolific right you have to be john jackson you have to be John Jackson. But but that says something as well. John Jackson is what? And I think that there's something about Black men and and research that that allows them more leeway than, than Black women. I think that's right, too. I think, I'm not saying that specifically about John Jackson. No, no, no. I mean, John's one of my mentors. So, no, I don't have <laughs> anything negative to say. He's, he's amazing. He's an amazing mentor. Like, amazing, amazing. He, he understands it. Right. And Lee, too. Lee Baker is one of my mentors. Like, they understand what's going on in the discipline. And, and so there's, there's no shade to them. The shade is to the discipline. And the discipline does reward certain people for doing certain types of work in very specific ways. And that's a word. <laughs> that is a word. <laughs> you know, actually, this is a perfect segue. Yeah, so it's I was say. And we know that the month is often spent lauding the achievements of Black men and then a select few Black women. So we just wanted to ask you, who is one of your unsung Black heroines? Okay, when we say unsung, (laughs) you know I'm an academic. When we say unsung, what do we mean? (laughs) Do we mean mean my Nana or do we mean Alicia Wynn, who is an anthropologist, an applied anthropologist? Like who, so what what do we mean? I I am open to... All of it, all the things. Nana is a hero, um, <laughs> as well as Alicia Wynn, who I've met, and I think that she's very nice and just was very open um, about talking about doing applied anthropology and you know her life outside mm-hmm. of the academy. Um, so I am interested in all of it. I love all of it. Alyssa, I don't know if you also agree, um, but yeah, I love it. <laughs> I, no, I, I agree. We want to hear your interpretation as well. I think that, you know, when it comes to Black History Month, of course, there are names that people can and will rattle off, so to speak. And so I think that there are a lot. <laughs> Brendan's laughing. Brendan is laughing. I was about to make, I was laughing because I was, 
I was going to make a joke of like, you know, like I'm sure Rosa Parks is tired. Like I'm sure oh, she's no. like, stop, stop invoking my she presence. She really is tired this time. I have left. I'm an ancestor. Stop invoking there my we- presence. But that's why I was laughing. <laughs> well, there you go. You, you covered what, what I guess. Um, and that's not to say that we shouldn't continue to to appreciate yeah, yeah. Um, and, and space, sing right. you know sing their names but also there are a lot of black women who are doing really great work who have done really great work and they don't get spoken about as much because of per, perhaps class issues colorist issues um, and and the way that society wants to hear certain words and certain ideas from certain women who look a certain way mm-hmm. it's so hard to like name people because there's so many people so many so many people who have been so important to my life and to my work um i guess when i think about me personally right you've already heard me talk about janetta cole and her role in my life in my work my nana is my grandmother and she's 92 almost 93 and yeah you posted a picture yeah of her she's amazing on Twitter. she's She's so cute. I'm like, she looks, she is so cute. Those pictures. I was like, wow, I see the, I see all the genetics popping off between the two of Thank you. you. I'm like, you're going to look good Thank in your nineties. You, Cause girl. I think she's beautiful. So if you see that, please bring it on. I tell her all the time. I want to be just like you when I grew up. Anna. She, she's amazing. I've just started, I've just started interviewing her to hopefully be able to tell her story. She migrated to Philadelphia. So she lives in Philadelphia now and raised my mom and her and my mom's sister in Philadelphia, divorced my grandfather, um, became a nurse and just did all the things. Right. Um, So I'm just really, really, I'm inspired by her. And it took some time. Right. We have to I mean, this is a whole net. This could be another podcast, but it's, you know, it's one of those things with with black women, I think, especially from the South, especially from the U.S. South, this. the history of of the violence of racism and how it impacted people's relationships with their with their maternal kin, right, with their mothers and grandmothers, right. and those because because they're so they're so hard they're so hard yeah. on you um, because they know they know what you're up against and and you don't know that while you're being raised and it's you know it's not until you're older they're older that you're like oh that's why you were like that. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's definitely a situation that has evolved um, over time. And so I'm excited to talk to her. She's excited. It was so funny because when I told her that I wanted to interview her, I was kind of, you know, telling her why, like, like, oh, there's, you know, there's the um, the great migration. And then you, you know, you became a nurse. And so you're part of this black women become professionals and you were raising um, my mom and 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 on spring and then you know and I'm going through all of that and and I'm like oh I just you know I want to really talk about that with you and just you know learn your story and everything and um and she's like oh you're telling me stuff I didn't know <laughs> <laughs> and it's you know it's so funny to to kind of think of her as like like this is the way it is right as black women right like you're just doing the things right you're just surviving and, it, and it's not mm-hmm. because you're a part of the Great Migration and you're a part of this, you know, this, the, the opportunities that opened up and you were able to send your kids to integrated school because, you know, Brown versus uh, Board of Education was passed. Like, you're not, you're not, 
paying attention to the history that you're, the historical moments that you're a part of. You're just, you're just trying to survive, right? And you're the ones making the history. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So yes, she wasn't getting that. So it's exciting. It's exciting to talk with her. She's excited. It's really fun. So yeah, so she's an unsung heroine for sure. I guess in terms of my my academic life, I would have to say it would it would be so hard to name all the people who have been so important to me, who have been heroines for me. But there have been there have been times, particular times where, you know, because of our discipline, because of the academy, there have been people who have really stepped up for me. And so I would have to say Bianca Williams, Lynn Bowles, Faye Harrison, Alaka Wali. I think, you know, just so many of our elders who have just, I think because they established the Association of Black Anthropologists are just, just so in tune with all the things that, that we need to be able to, to make it through, to make it through all of this and be able to thrive through it too, right? It's not just, it's not just making it, right? It's also doing it in such a way that you feel loved and cared for and supported. And so that was part of the reason why I wanted, I was happy to be a part of the Association of Black Anthropologists and to run for president and all that stuff it was because I wanted to be able to to make sure that the that the community that that was there for me was there for other people too. Yeah, I think um and I think that all of your work and of course the work of our elders in the discipline is really showing through now in the type of community that we have in the Association for Black Anthropologists and I remember going to the 2017 AAA meeting and sitting in in the mentoring session and feeling like it felt like the first time like oh there are other black people who do this and like who want me to be successful because i had already had a rough start at our graduate program and i was just like okay is this even something i want to do but just being in that room and meeting janetta b cole and yolanda moses and um lynn bowles and I remember there was a circle. There was like this power yes. elder circle. Yes, that was <laughs> the way it was arranged. Yes, that was the year we did um, the wisdom circle. Yes, and oh, I didn't um, say Irma McLaren. Definitely Irma, for sure. And like everybody, just they were just like, "Here's all the gems," you know. <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, I gotta write these down." And so, yeah, I just would say that we are just so appreciative of your work and. As we are like winding down here, we just wanted to ask you, what advice would you give to up and coming Black feminist anthropologists? That's a really good question. Hold hold that thought, because I'm trying to, when we were talking about unsung heroines, I needed to say also Cheryl Maria. Yeah. So advice for Black feminist anthropologists? Mm-hmm circles of support and collaboration. I was fortunate, and I'm, I'm so glad the two of you have each other um, to do this work. I, f- I feel like you're unsung heroines because this is just like such a powerful platform. <laughs> and I know it's a labor of love. Like you're not, you're, I mean, as far as I know, you're not getting paid for it. Yeah, it's, I mean, that is a Black feminist praxis 
in action right there, right? That you would take, that you would create a space in Zora Neale Hurston's name and make it about having these, you know, conversations that are about the discipline, that are about Black women, that are about all the different, you know, things that we need to to consider, be engaged in, uh, be thinking about, be pushing ourselves on, be accountable to. So I also think of Kristen Smith and the Site Black Women Project um, that has just been amazing also. So I think in terms of like, I think the biggest advice is, is you already know, if you're a Black feminist anthropologist, you already know the work that you're committed to, the tradition of work that you're committed to. What you need after you know about that commitment is support, right? Is, um, is collaborative support. And I know when I was in grad school, there were six, there were six of us in the anthropology PhD program at Emory at the same time but in staggering years. So we weren't all in the same cohort, but we were there at the same time. And we, we would get together for dinner. We would get together just to talk, to hang out. To, so we didn't do a lot of studying together. We had very different projects, but we were committed to one another, just in terms of making sure we all made it through the program with our selves intact. <laughs> and I mean, if you're not, if you're not lucky enough to be at a university in a program where you have other fellow travelers, <laughs> as Brendan and I do, <laughs> join, join the ABA, join the grad, exactly. <laughs> the graduate student interest group. Uh, we're in it. Exactly. There's a Slack channel. Yes, that's a word. That is it, right? Um, and you have to, and you have to keep doing that throughout your careers. You have to always have that group of folks that you know you can you can talk to. Right now, I'm in a writing group with three other Black feminist anthropologists: um, Erica Williams, Laurie and Bowles, and Donna Lisa Fisher, and. You know, most of the time we're writing, but a lot of times we're like, so I have a question. I'm trying to figure out what to do with my department. (laughs) (laughs) I think it just points back to, circles back to something you said at the beginning and thinking about what does it even mean to be Black feminist and how so much of that is tied into care um, and caring for each other. Which I think is what, I'm going to say this, right? Which like is the marker, the difference between just being a Black anthropologist and being committed to the practice of like Black feminist anthropology, right? It's this ethics of care and this mode of moving through the world where community really is at the center of things. And, you know, I'm glad that to know that the ABA exists. I didn't know that it was a thing before. And, And Lee Baker was is the one who told me to like go to the meetings and stuff. He was like, I know you got all this other stuff going on, but like, just go to the meetings, just go and meet people and, um, and move from there. And I think it was just so good to see that community there and, and to be able to build from meeting people that day. Um, or even to be able to say like, I got to shake hands with mm-hmm. Irma McLaren. I got to shake hands with Janetta B. Cole. 
I don't know. I still think about that. Yeah. I, like, yes, I think the shaking hands is a distant moments memory in my life now. where I was so happy. <laughs> <laughs> that, that may be the last black feminist hand you shake. <laughs> uh, you, you shake hands and then you immediately use your, your hand sanitizer. Sanitizer. Sanitizer shake. Right. Yeah. So unfortunately, we are at our last question, um, which is thinking about just our podcast and work that we want to point people to work that you're doing as well. So our podcast is, of course, an homage, a tribute to these or Neil Hurston. And you are one of the faculty members for the National Endowment for the Humanities Hurston on the Horizon Virtual Summer Institute. And we wanted to just ask you if you could tell our listeners a bit more about the Institute and um, how they can participate. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited. I feel I'm feel so honored and blessed to be asked to be a part of this project. So it's a it's a three week institute, um, but it's for college and university um, professors. So I it's focusing on Zora Neale Hurston's impact on everything, right? On <laughs> on literature, on culture, um, as an author, as an anthropologist, as a journalist, as a filmmaker. And it's happening July 11th through 30th. And registration is open now, um, or application. It's actually an application process. Um, so it's through the University of Kansas. And you can apply at their uh, at their website. So it's Hurston.com. Kansas University. And so what's interesting about it is it's the thing that happens to Zora Neale Hurston all the time, right? That she gets grabbed up by the humanities broadly, like she gets grabbed up by literature folks. Um, so the folks that are putting it together are primarily um, folks in, in English and literature, but thankfully they're being expansive. And so I'm going to be one of the faculty members who is talking about um, Zora Neale Hurston's contribution to the discipline of anthropology. And I'm primarily going to be talking about her, um, her work as an anthropologist and focusing on a couple of her projects that are noted as ethnographic, right? So Mules and Men, Barracoon, and then the work that she was doing with the WPA and, you know, and, and those types of things. So it's going to be Really great. It's a start. The, the, the faculty that are part of the program, it's an all-star cast, really. Um, the people who have been brought together to be the faculty um, presenters and, and, and uh, teachers and lecturers. Um, so it's going to, I'm excited. It was supposed to be in person, um, but they switched it to remote because of the popsicle. So... <laughs> We're <laughs> we're gonna be remote, um, which is fine. But um, yeah, it would have been great to be together. Yeah. All right. Ah, too bad about the potpourri. <laughs> I know. Well, <laughs> we are going to wrap it up. We're just gonna do our little it's our little great. shtick. Um. <laughs> it's been great though, y'all. I don't know if it's thank time you, thank when I'm supposed you. to say it's been great, but it's been great. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thank you all so much for listening. This episode was produced by yours truly, Alyssa James, and my lovely co-host, Brendan Times. Our intern is Menkute Whaley. 
This season of the podcast is generously funded by the Racial Justice Mini-Grant Program through the Office of University Life and supported by the Institute for Religion, Culture, and Public Life and the Office of the Vice Provost for Faculty Advancement, the Office for Academic Diversity and Inclusion, the Arts and Science Graduate Council, and listeners just like you. Zora's Daughters is distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. And finally, a huge thank you to Dr. Rache Daniel Barnes for joining us today. For our listeners, make sure you head to zorasdaughters.com to find transcripts for our episodes, our bios, our contact information, and ways to support the podcast. All right, everyone, be kind to yourselves. Bye. 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 <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.